Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to all of you watching at home, online as well. Please open your Bibles to the book of James this morning. Book of James, if you don't have a Bible with you here in the sanctuary, you'll find paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. We'll be reading from page 587. We're looking at James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Uh, Many of you know that I happen to be a really big Beatles fan. I've loved the music of the Beatles since I was uh, a young kid. Uh, But there is one thing that kind of makes me sad about the Beatles, and that's the way they ended. Uh, It's very interesting to kind of compare the early days of the Beatles to the latter days. In the early days, you see the pictures and the videos of of the Beatles, and, you know, there's just so much excitement and and joy uh, and enthusiasm uh, in their music and in their attitude and in the smiles on their faces. And then you look at later pictures of the Beatles, and they seem cynical, detached from each other. They seem kind of angry. They seem actually not joyful anymore, but joyless. And um, it turns out by 1970, they'd broken up. The height of Beatlemania was 1964, so just six years after the height of their popularity, uh, they broke up. And a big reason why they broke up is they just couldn't stand each other anymore. (laughs) They couldn't get along. Um, Shortly after they broke up, John Lennon wrote a song called How Do You Sleep that was directed at Paul McCartney, asking Paul McCartney, how can you sleep? Knowing all the things that you've done, how at night can you peacefully sleep? When these two guys were best friends just a few years earlier, um, John Lennon was bringing Yoko Ono into the studio. That made the rest of the Beatles very upset as well, violating a policy apparently that they had set. Paul McCartney, pretty bossy. George Harrison always felt overlooked and uh, bossed around by Paul McCartney. And in fact, George Harrison, later on after the Beatles, reflecting on his experience in that group, he said, the whole Beatles thing to me was like a horror story. I just hate it. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, these guys at the height of their popularity, making all this music, traveling the world, earning all this money, and George Harrison hated every moment of it. At least that's how he described it later. Now, we kind of expect these kinds of things to happen in the world, right? It's sad when we see these things happen in the world, but we're not entirely surprised. But when these kinds of things happen in the church, it's very sad. It is profoundly sad when in the church we find people who got along at one point are arch enemies later on. When there used to be union and now there's disunion and dispute and disorder and conflict. Now, of course, there are exceptions, right? I mean, there are times when it is appropriate, even in the church, for there to be a split. If heresy creeps into the church, Um, If the gospel is lost, well, arguments need to take place and maybe splits, breakups need to happen. That's true. But other times when this kind of disorder exists because of 
bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, that's really sad. And that's what James is talking about in our text this morning, James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. So that's what we're going to look at today. We are back in Route 66 and uh, reading this New Testament book written by a guy named James. No surprise there. James was the brother, actually, of Jesus Christ, an apostle. And uh, this book was written very early, actually, about 49 A.D., so quite a few years before uh, the epistles of Paul, for instance. And themes in the book of James, you'll notice faith and action, very common. Chapter 2 is all about that. And wisdom, actually. You'll notice if you read the book of James that it kind of resembles the Old Testament book of Proverbs. We might say James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And um, just by the way, Mary and I are going to be gone for the next couple of weeks. Pastor Brian will be preaching next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, Andrew Brown will be preaching. And he'll be picking up in James where he left off. He's kind of going through the book of James during the times that he has in the pulpit. And so we'll be back in James in a couple of weeks, I think, chapter 1, finishing chapter 1, I think, in a couple of weeks. Um, So let's read this short little passage. Please stand uh, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, James 3, 13 to 18. And just to give a little bit of context, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James is writing about the tongue the restless evil of the tongue and the way we tend to use our tongue in very destructive and hateful ways. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, you notice he's talking about quarrels and fights. And so in between those two sections, we have this little passage here, verses 13 to 18. So clearly what James is addressing here is conflict in the church. And so here's what he says, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." Father, your Holy Spirit is needed, so please open our hearts and our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So something you'll find a lot in the scriptures is that there are very often um, very sharp contrasts made. You know, there's good versus bad. There's um, heaven versus hell. There's light versus darkness. And um, that's what we're finding here in this passage. There is a contrast between what I'm going to call earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. So we're just going to see two points here to cover this passage uh, as it relates to this idea of church conflict. And the first thing I want to show you is this, that there is an earthly wisdom that produces conflict. 
And that's what these first few verses talk about, an earthly kind of wisdom that produces conflict. So again, background situation here. We're not sure exactly what was going on, but uh, the beginning of chapter 3 talks about uh, not many of you becoming teachers. So apparently there were some teachers in the church at the time who were uh, teaching in such a way that the church was becoming divided, and so there were various parties rising up and factions and people siding with one teacher and another and advancing kind of selfish agendas. And so that's what James is addressing here. And what, what he's talking about in particular are those people who are thinking that they're very wise because of the things that they know and because of the things they're saying and because they're winning arguments and because they have people that are following their particular positions. And so he challenges this in verse 13, looking to the people who think they're wise merely by what they know, and he says this, who is really wise and understanding among you, particularly those of you who think it's all about what you know? Here is the person who's truly wise. It's the person who demonstrates it by his good conduct. Verse 13, you see that? Who is wise and understanding? This will be shown, James says, by his good conduct, in his works, in his lifestyle, particularly in regard to his relationship with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he draws this link now between this kind of proper wisdom that results in good works and humility. By his good conduct, let him show his good works, this good conduct that demonstrates wisdom in the meekness of wisdom, he says. In the humility of wisdom. Some translations say humility instead of meekness, which are, mean basically the same thing. So what James is saying here is that a wise person is always humble. If I were to ask you, are you a wise person, or if you were to ask me if I thought you were a wise person, I think the first question I would want to ask you is, are you a humble person? If you're a humble person, you're wise. But if you're not a humble person, you're not wise. The link here between meekness and wisdom suggests that they go together. And this is what James is saying, you who think you're so wise, really your wisdom is going to be shown in your conduct, particularly in your humble conduct. Now, how do we describe meekness? Sometimes when people think of somebody who's meek, they think of somebody who's, who's really kind of uh, flaccid and, and feeble and uh, cowardly and mild and spineless and withdrawn. That's not what meekness or humility actually intends to convey, at least in the scriptures, because we know that Moses, for instance, was the meekest man on earth, right? Moses led Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus. I mean, that takes a person with a certain amount of skill and courage. Um, Jesus is described as humble. Jesus, in his courage, went to the cross and voluntarily gave up his life for sinners. We're not talking about feeble, weak, spineless people when we think of Moses and Jesus. But both of them, nonetheless, are considered humble and meek. <clears throat> so humility really is just this. You just realize how far short you fall of the glory and holiness and greatness of God. Humility is when you have a basic disposition of considering that other people are better than you. 
smarter than you and more godly than you. Whether that's actually the case or not, but that's your basic disposition. When somebody comes to you and challenges you or criticizes you, you don't immediately rise up in defense, but instead you think to yourself, you know what? You're probably right. I probably did do something wrong. After all, it's very common for me to do things wrong. Why am I so surprised when someone presents that to me as a possibility? Humility says there's a lot that I don't know in this life. Humility recognizes that and embraces it and lets that attitude show forth in his or her conduct with one another. Here's how Tim Keller talks about humility. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. This is the humility of wisdom that James is talking about in verse 13. And then he goes on here in this passage, and he talks about two particular um, attitudes that are the exact opposite of humility. Two things that are the, the exact opposite of humility, and one of them is bitter jealousy. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy in your heart. Now, let's pause for a moment to acknowledge that actually there is good jealousy. Do you know that? Because the Bible says that God is a jealous God. It says that in actually various different places. And that just means that God is so <clears throat> desiring of the devotion and affection of his people. And because he's God, he has a right to demand it. Because he knows that our full loyalty to him is what will give us the greatest happiness and blessing. When our hearts wander from him, he gets jealous. And the Bible says that's, that's a good thing. So jealousy can be good, but notice this is bitter jealousy. Uh, this is a kind of jealousy that comes from earthly wisdom, not heavenly wisdom. It's a bitter kind of jealousy. Uh, I just noticed an example of this, if I could use another music illustration. I saw this documentary about Miles Davis recently. And Miles Davis was married to a woman named Frances Taylor. Frances Taylor was a dancer. And she was trying out for West Side Story once, and this very gifted dancer, and uh, was you know, regularly practicing with all these people who were trying out for West Side Story. And Miles Davis just became overcome with bitter jealousy, decided he did not want his wife out with other people. And so one day he went and he picked her up after practice and she came out and he said, I don't want you doing this anymore. And so she agreed, went home, stopped dancing, gave that up. And in the documentary they were interviewing her and she was saying very frequently I would just kind of, at home, I would just kind of disappear. I'd run upstairs for a little while then I'd come back and, and nobody really knew what I was doing when I ran upstairs. But every time I was running upstairs I got out the box of my dancing shoes and just opened it up and looked at my shoes and longed for the opportunity to dance again that was taken from her by a husband who was filled with bitter jealousy. So that's the first attitude here that is against this idea of humility. But the second thing that James mentions is a selfish ambition. Again, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition 
in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is nothing to boast about if you're jealous or full of selfish ambition. But again, let's acknowledge that there is a proper and good use of ambition. Ambition can be good. It's, it's good to want to excel on the athletic field. It's good to want to excel in your occupation. It's good to want to excel uh, as a student and want to want to get A's. I mean, that's, that's good. That's wise. Uh, Miles Davis actually was a very ambition, ambitious artistically person and accomplished a lot of art that we value and cherish today. But this is not just merely ambition. It's selfish ambition. What James is talking about here is a kind of ambition to advance your own cause and to always be right and to never be caught wrong and to get what you want in such a way that you're willing to ruin relationships, to step upon other people, to offend others, and to divide the church. And it's okay because you want to be true to your ambition. It's a selfish ambition, an ambition that has no regard whatsoever for how your ambition is affecting others. And what James says here is that this is the kind of thing that is not worth boasting about. He goes on, it gets even more serious. He says, where does this come from, this kind of attitude, verse 15? It's not the wisdom that comes from above. That's why I've titled this point an earthly wisdom an earthly wisdom, because this wisdom does not come from above. It is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. And I just want you to sit on that word for just a little bit, demonic. You know, we think of demonic activity and we think of sacrificing goats and all sorts of supernatural activity. What James here is saying is that what is demonic is a selfish ambition that's willing to create conflict in the church, that that comes from the pit of hell. That's what James is saying. What does it produce? Where does it go? Verse 16, he mentions these same two things again, jealousy and selfish ambition, and says where these things exist, there will be disorder. There will be conflict. There will be disunity and every vile practice. Now, we're not really sure what he means by every vile practice. He doesn't tell us specifically what he's referring to, but we know what disorder is. We know what disunity is. We know what conflict is. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Satan greatly approves of our railing at each other, but God does not. A guy named Thomas Brooks, the wolves, excuse me, four wolves to worry the lambs, that's no wonder, that's what we would expect. A lamb to be worried about a wolf. But for one lamb to worry another? For one sheep to worry another? For one believer to worry another? That is unnatural and monstrous. So let me give you an example here of how to act in a way that is different than what James is describing here. Uh, how to act in a way that it, is filled with the meekness or humility of wisdom and that rejects jealousy and selfish ambition. Um, <clears throat> some people don't know that Princeton University actually started out as a Christian school and actually a Presbyterian school. And there's a Princeton University, there's also a Princeton Seminary. And the very first professor at Princeton Seminary was a guy named Archibald Alexander. 
And the second professor at Princeton Seminary was a guy named Samuel Miller. Samuel Miller was hired to be a professor, and he had had a conflict years earlier when he was a pastor, and he had had a falling out with somebody. There was this kind of bitter dispute between him and another guy. This is like in the year 1813, early 1800s. And so when Samuel Miller was hired at Princeton Seminary, he came onto that faculty knowing that he had a history of kind of dividing with people. And so he set forth seven resolutions to prepare himself when he began to enter the Princeton environment so that he wouldn't cause conflict. And the fourth resolution reads like this. He says this, I am resolved that by the grace of God, while I will carefully avoid giving offense to my colleagues, I will in no case take offense at his treatment of me. And he's thinking particularly of Archibald Alexander and how they're going to be relating to each other. I have come hither resolving that whatever may be the sacrifice of my personal feelings, whatever may be the consequence, I will not take offense unless I am called upon to relinquish truth or duty. I not only will never, I not only will never, the Lord helping me, indulge a jealous, envious, or suspicious temper toward him, but I will in no case allow myself to be wounded by any slight or appearance of disrespect. I will give up all of my own claims rather than let the cause of Christ suffer by animosity or contest. What worthy goals to set. What worthy goals for all of us to set in the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, not only to not give offense to one another, but to set our hearts that we're not going to take offense either, that we would give up our claims if those claims are bringing harm upon the cause of Christ. That was the heart of Samuel Miller and is the very opposite of the earthly kind of wisdom that James is talking about here in these first few verses. So, oh, there they are. I forgot to show you pictures of them. That's Archibald Alexander on the left, and that's Samuel Miller (laughs) on the right. Secondly, there is a heavenly wisdom that produces peace. First of all, there's an earthly wisdom that produces conflict in the church, but James goes on there to say that there's an earthly wisdom that produces peace. So you see the contrast here in verse 17 with that word but. There's a change of thought here. He'd been talking about this earthly wisdom, but now we're talking about something different. The wisdom from above, he says. Heavenly wisdom. This is not, not earthly wisdom. This isn't the kind of wisdom that people come up with just based on their own autonomous, independent human reason. This is a wisdom that is God-sent. This is a wisdom that comes from heaven. 
This is a wisdom that is only accessible if God gives it to us. It's a wisdom that comes to us by his revelation in Scripture and through his Holy Spirit. A God-sent heavenly wisdom, which Proverbs 2 talks about, for the Lord gives wisdom. That's where it comes from, the Lord. It's from his mouth that come knowledge and understanding, and he stores up sound wisdom for the upright, for his people. So James now is talking about a wisdom where we have to lift up our eyes to the heavens if we're going to get it and not rely solely and exclusively on our own human reason. So what does this heavenly wisdom look like? Well, he gives us several descriptions here of what godly heavenly wisdom look like. And the first word that he uses here is pure. It's pure. Verse 17, first pure, he says. So he seems to suggest that this is the the chief um, attitude of heavenly wisdom. It begins with a purity that is just kind of an untainted desire for obedience and devotion to God. Remember in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. So it begins with a purity of heart, moves on to um, a peaceableness. Again, staying in verse 17. First pure, then peaceable. Also translated peace-loving. It's an attitude of loving peace. Something that a church in conflict needs, right? People who love peace. This is also... Um, yeah, we can say this is just the opposite of, of jealousy and selfish ambition. And of course, Jesus said also, blessed are the peacemakers. But it's also gentle. Gentle. This is also translated as considerate. It's just an attitude that's not combative. It's not argumentative. It's not always looking for a fight. Paul says in uh, 1 Thessalonians, he talks about his time in Thessalonica, and he says, you know, my friends, that we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. It's the biblical picture of gentleness, a mother gently caring for her infant. And that's the attitude that James is giving to us here about how we should relate to one another. Gentleness. Also, open to reason. This is also translated submissive. What would be the connection between open to reason and submissive? The idea here is that you're willing to yield. You're willing to be corrected. You're willing to learn. You're willing to say, I was wrong. Those are hard words to say for a lot of us. But the one who's open to reason, willing to yield, will say, when appropriate, I was wrong. Also, full of mercy, full of mercy and good fruit. Good fruit results from an attitude of mercy. You know, it's, it's justice that says people need to get what they deserve. That's justice. And friends, that's God's job. God meets out justice. Mercy, though, rather than insisting that people get what they deserve, mercy says, I'm going to treat people better than they deserve. And that's your job, Christian. That's your job. It's not your job to make sure that everybody gets what they deserve, treated as they deserve, gets the retaliation or the punishment that they deserve. That ultimately is not your job. Your job is to show mercy to one another. And the result of that is good fruit in the community of faith. We also see 
that an impartial attitude is part of this heavenly wisdom that produces peace. This is, uh, uh, the way this is translated, is it, it, it's, a, it's an attitude that fails to make distinctions. It refuses to make distinctions among people. That is, an attitude that shows no favoritism to one person or another based on where they come from or what they look like. It's um, not showing favoritism based on race or gender or politics or education or income. You're impartial in the way you relate to your brothers and sisters. And then lastly, James says, it's also sincere. That is, just transparent, um, not hypocritical, not two-faced, not saying one thing in one place and then another thing in another regarding a particular person. You're sincere in following um, your desires, your inclinations in any given situation, sincerely and openly. Now, I, it needs to be said that, as I alluded to earlier, that there is a time for disagreement. I mean, let's not forget that. There is a time for disagreement in the church around doctrinal things, particularly when the gospel is at stake. I mean, there's countless examples in the scriptures of this happening. You see the prophets in the Old Testament, and they're constantly issuing challenges to people who had gone astray from orthodoxy. You see um, Jesus doing this quite often, arguing with the Pharisees and getting into conflict over what is true and what is not. You see Paul doing this. Remember, Paul confronted Peter. He said, I opposed Peter to his face because he wasn't living in a way that was in line with the gospel. So church history too, Luther, Calvin, I and mean, we can show countless examples of where people had to stand up for the truth and it resulted in a certain disunity because the gospel was at stake. So we can't misread what James is saying. He's not saying that there's never a time for a confrontation regarding truth, but there's a proper way to do it. And I'm going to share another example uh, with you from church history from many, many years ago. We're going to go back to the 1700s this time um, to consider a dispute that existed between John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now, th these two guys were great evangelists in the church. They were open-air preachers in the United States. They'd just travel around and just find a field and start preaching, and hundreds and thousands of people would gather around, and many people came to faith in Christ under the ministry of these two men. And they were friends. They were co-laborers. They wanted to see conversions. They were united in that. But they disagreed on some doctrinal things, particularly with regard to the doctrine of predestination and election and whether a person could lose salvation or not. So Wesley thought a person could lose salvation. Whitfield was very strong that a person could not lose salvation. So Wesley started writing about this, putting out these public writings, um, advancing his views, and Whitfield would say, please don't do that. I mean, you're causing disunity and division, but Wesley kept doing it. And uh, admittedly, I'm taking this from a biography of George Whitfield, so maybe a biography of John Wesley would have a different take on this, but uh, according to what I've read, it was Whitfield who was trying to say, look, we don't want to divide in public. We have a ministry here. People are getting saved. Let's be united in this. Well, Wesley kept kind of writing, and so Whitfield decided he needed to challenge Wesley. And so he wrote a letter to Wesley, 
And I think it's just such a, a model of how to handle disagreement because Whitfield didn't act like their points of disagreement were trivial or not worth talking about. In fact, when Whitfield wrote to Wesley, he said, to begin with, he said, I just want you to know, I am 10,000 times more convinced of my position than the last time we talked. <laughs> so, you know, Whitfield's not backing off of his position at all, but he goes on and he says this to, to Wesley. He says, oh, dear, honored sir, I wish you as much success as your own heart can wish. I mean, do you think of that way about the people that you have strong disagreements with? Can you say that to a person with whom you're in some kind of a heated dispute? I wish you as much success as your own heart can wish. Were you here, I would weep over you with tears of love and tell you what great things God has done for my soul since we parted last. Indeed, I often and heartily pray for your success in the gospel. May your inward strength and outward sphere increase day by day. May God use you, John Wesley, as a choice and singular instrument of promoting his glory on earth. And may I see you crowned with an eternal and exceeding weight of glory in the world to come. Now, if you're going to disagree with somebody, that's a good way to do it. You can offer up your disagreement. You can stand on what you believe to be true. But you don't have to do it in anger and bitterness and pettiness. You don't have to be cold and critical. You can love somebody and disagree with them at the same time. We can do that together. It's possible. And the, the Bible presents this to us as the model, and we see the way the Holy Spirit worked in many people throughout church history to do exactly this. What, what is the result of this? This is how the passage ends here in verse 18. <clears throat> For this heavenly wisdom to be practiced, it results in a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. There was a guy named uh, Thomas Manton, a Puritan, who said this, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. I mean, you can't blame people who are not Christians who look at the church and see Christians fighting one another. You cannot blame them for not wanting to take part in that. Our governor, Eric Holcomb, has, has said, and I think I've related this to you before, that as churches are reopening here during the lockdown, that he wants to use churches as a test case, as kind of a control group. He's allowed churches to gather with more than 25 people. I think maybe that's changed now. But he allowed us to gather in larger groups than the rest of the state was allowed to gather because he wanted to use us as a test group and because apparently he was confident that we could do it well. I mean, this has been publicly said. You know, friends, I don't know about the world, but the state of Indiana is watching the church to see how we do this. What are they seeing? What are they noticing? 
in the way this is taking place. The Jesus that we worship, the one we follow, is not ultimately Governor Holcomb. The one we follow is Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one who has reconciled us to him, the one who has turned away the wrath of the Father against us, the one who has removed all conflict and hostility that exists between us and our Savior. He's the one who made peace with us by the blood of his cross. So how can we do anything other, brothers and sisters, than to strive for peace with everyone? That a harvest of righteousness would be visible to everybody throughout the church and at New Life Presbyterian Church. Let that be the case. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for wisdom from above. God in heaven, by your spirit, help us to put aside our bitter jealousy and our selfish ambition for the sake of your church and your honor and the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.